0: I think you gotta love it and crazy comes with it because this isn't regular work you know mm-hmm. it's not a job you don't uh, you don't have real rules there are rules but you you determine your reality by, by how you improvise inside of those rules if you want to produce records so mm-hmm. it's it's tricky and i guess it's not for regular people
1: Welcome to Episode 16, our last offering in Season 2 of Jazz Backstory. Our opening mystery quote, which included the line, I think you've got to love it and crazy comes with it, could very well have been spoken by any number of jazz artists who have articulated a similar sentiment. In fact, it comes from Joel Dorn, who made his living as a record producer. The topic for today's episode... When a jazz musician lands a record deal, a contract is drawn up and a producer is assigned. The musician, especially one early in their career, may or may not have approved of their choice and often will have no choice in the matter. The record company fronts the money for the recording and manufacturing, and while they're interested in the creative process, they are also protective of their investment. One task of a record producer is to make sure the project stays within budget and to handle any issues with unhappy artistes. The actual record producing depends on the individual. If you ask five record producers to define their role, you'll hear five different answers, all decidedly non-specific. Helen Dance was a lifelong jazz enthusiast and began producing records with Duke Ellington's small group in the 1930s. I interviewed Helen in 1998, and my introduction of her felt a bit short of how she defined herself.
2: Jazz producer is what I like best. Jazz producer. Mm, That's what I think is most important. Yes. The music that you have contrived to bring to life, bring out. Don't you think so? Yeah. That's what lives. When you, um...
1: Use contrive. How does that work as a producer?
2: You're... I don't even think of it <laughs> that way. I mean, you know, I started very early. Mm-hmm. I think I was the the first. I was the first woman producer, and uh, I was in Chicago when before Downbeat was born, really. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I was also the first contributor, but. I, I just always looked on it from the start till till now as you're just a channel. I don't think of producing it. I think of it being produced through you.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's the way I think is very important because that's what is important. Yeah. And, uh, of course, you can be helpful, but the main thing is that you are a channel, mm-hmm. I think.
1: Keep Keepnews experienced the record business from a number of angles. He began his producing career in the late 40s and was a co-owner of Riverside Records, a respected jazz label. Oren was behind the glass at sessions with Thelonious Monk, Cannonball Adderley, and Bill Evans.
3: I tend to think of myself uh, primarily, at least, as, as a producer, and I would, mm-hmm. that's the way I would prefer to be. To be remembered, if I were to have a gravestone, that's what it should. Yeah. If it if it gives occupation on gravestones, yeah. that's that's what I want. I've been very fortunate uh, because in this business, in particular, a lot of the associations that you form, at least initially, are accidental as hell. Uh, if someone tells me that I have been helpful. To this or that career, that's exactly the thing that I want to hear because mm-hmm. I have, I've always looked on the role of a producer in a very specific way. Now you know this one of the hardest things, and I've been at it. Uh, I'm getting perilously close to my fiftieth anniversary in this business, mm-hmm. but uh, I still have to pause usually when I'm asked to make some kind of definition of what it is I do. Because for better or worse, I don't know about other things because I've only done this really. But jazz record producers do a little bit of everything, Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's always a shortage of personnel. And uh, it's to me the important, the most important role is what I have taken to repetitiously referring to as being a catalytic agent. Mm -hmm. I'm I am supposed to create. The circumstances under which the artist can work most effectively. That is, I finally got it, got it, got to boiled down to that one mantra, and mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, that's what I am. That's that's what I do. There are no almost almost literally, there are no two artists who can be dealt with in the same way. There are. Perhaps no two record dates that can be dealt with in the same way. That's why I didn't get bored a long time ago with doing this. During our 2002
1: interview, Oren spoke about his association with pianist Bill Evans. While the bulk of Bill's recordings occurred in the piano trio format, a solo composition and performance entitled Peace Peace was lightning in a bottle moment, fortunately captured on tape. Peace, peace is based on a repeated two-chord vamp in the left hand, while Bill's right hand created phrases and licks that strayed progressively further from the tonality and the sedate rhythm. During high school, my nightly fixation of this record eventually brought my father to my room to inquire, what in the world is he doing? Orrin produced this session and reminisced about the moment.
3: Bill actually... He wanted to be a trio piano player, and he fundamentally was. Mm-hmm. So nobody messed with him artistically too much that way.
1: Speaking of him, I wanted to get your reaction on this, if I could. See if I found okay. the kind of place I was. Since I don't for. know what you put on, this is like a blindfold. Okay. Test. <laughs> I always wondered what was going on in the booth. Especially
3: This is the solo day? Yeah. Peace. Peace. Well, Peace, Peace uh, is is literally what it always was identified as being. Peace, Peace was, uh, was an improvisation. It is true that what he was setting out to do was to create an introduction to a recording of some other time, the Leonard Bernstein, Comden and Green song. Uh, He started messing around and found that, gee, this was something very, very interesting in and of itself. So that literally, that was created at the record date. Also, he maintained for years that he couldn't play it again because it had never been notated uh, and it just existed as free improvisation. Toward the end, though, I do believe he had gotten himself to where he played it. You know, He re- recreated re- yeah, it re- and, and, and played it a, a few times. But essentially, it was what it was. It was a total improvisation starting from an initial concept, which was that he was trying right. to do something that would fit as an intro to some other time. Right. Did you have a
1: feeling uh, when it was over that this is going on the album? Right away?
3: Uh, well it actually what happens is when anything gets done at a record session the only unusual thought I'm going to have is going to be, gee, this is lousy, this is not going to go okay. on the album. <laughs> okay. uh, was, we're in the studio to right. make the album. Why not start with the right. And even something that's added like that, because, uh, you know, after all, jazz is a, a music of improvisation, right. is it not? Right. No, so it's not a matter of, gee, isn't that wonderful? It's probably, gee, isn't it wonderful we didn't waste our damn time? <laughs> studio time is expensive, you know.
1: I had mixed feelings when Oren casually stated that piece-piece, as issued, was two different takes, spliced together. Splicing is an appropriate vocabulary word, literally taking a razor blade to a section of tape and joining it together. While it was the engineer who did the cutting, it was the producer, and sometimes the artist, if they were even present, that made the decision where to cut producer george avakian played a significant role in the career of two of the most important trumpet players in jazz louis armstrong and miles davis In the mid-50s, Miles was anxious to form a new band and move from Prestige, a struggling jazz label, to Columbia Records, a major player in multiple music genres. Georgia Vakin was assigned to produce Miles, and he was determined to capitalize both commercially and artistically on Miles' musical talent, as well as his distinctive persona.
4: And that's what happened. Miles was fortunate enough to get the original quintet together very quickly in September 55. I went to hear them for the first time in Philadelphia when he called and said, hey, I've got these terrific guys, Coltrane, and Coltrane was just a name to me, I'd never even heard him. And uh, uh, Philly Joe Jones and Paul Chambers and Red Garland, well I knew them of course. And he did hold them together and Whittemore did uh, do a terrific job of booking them when there were no Columbia records to back them up so that when we got the first album out around midnight which uh, commemorated the performance of the song at Newport, uh, I had already told Miles before that release, look we have to do something different. And of course Miles was just interested in getting out and playing. And uh, that's how the idea of of, uh, Gil Evans' uh, arrangements came about. And the uh, title of the album, I I told Miles and Gil, is going to be Miles Ahead, so give me an original composition, we'll make a DJ single of that and some of the other selections because uh, uh, the album, as you know, is done, uh, this is a conception of uh, Gilhead, as a complete suite, continuous. So for DJs we had to put out the uh, uh, separate singles. And I told the art director, the album is going to be called Miles Ahead. What can you uh, give me as a cover that will say, Miles is ahead of everybody else and Miles is moving ahead, he's miles ahead of everything. And he came up with that sailboat photograph which he got from an agency which tells the story. You look past the girl on the sailboat. She's miles ahead of everybody, there's nothing but blue sky and blue ocean behind uh-huh. her, she's winning the race. Well, she doesn't look like she's racing uh-huh. but she's attractive. And that whole promotion worked like a dream. Yeah. That album sold unbelievably and established miles all over the world. Well, pretty miles hated the
1: cover of course <laughs> because it was a white girl. Well you're a pretty astute balance of artistic and commercial concerns. Well, that's true. You
4: you had to do that in order to uh, uh, stand out.
1: George reveals a fact about the record business that may come as a surprise. It was business as usual that after a jazz artist recorded enough music for an LP, they often would not see or hear the final product until it was completed and in the record stores. Choices about what takes to use, song order, liner notes, cover art, and even the title of the recording, were often made by the producer and the suits that they reported to. Joel Dorn, who offered the crazy quote at the top, was honest about his inability to play an instrument or even hold a tune, but he liked making records. A good portion of his career was spent at Atlantic Records, where he produced both jazz and popular artists. During our 2007 interview, Joel spoke about the parts and the whole, the planned and the unexpected. You know,
0: I listened to some records that I made I hadn't listened to in like 30 years, you know, ones that I really liked, that I liked the production on, and, um... Somebody said to me, like, well, you know, what would you do if you did that again? I have no idea. I don't even know how we got like a lot of it. You know, a lot of yeah. it's a function of the moment. Yeah. You have a singer, you have strings, you have rhythm, you have background vocals, you have horns, whatever it is. But when you worked, especially on tape, and you mix all of them together, you have everything you want. You have the rhythm here, and the vocal here, and the strings here, and the horns here, and the background vocals here, and the percussion here. But All the little sounds and all the little noises and all the little things that happen on tape, at a certain point they all combine. And then there's like something that has nothing to do with where you put anything musically. It has to do with the overtone on this and the undertone on that and the echo here and the EQ here. And there's that world, more so with uh, Spectre's records than anybody in the history of records. I mean not only did you hear. You know, the piano overdubbed eleven times and, and all that echo that came back and fed on itself and all the things that he did. But then there's the glue. There's the world, you know, that happens when you put all these things together and the are things that you don't plan for and you couldn't mm-hmm. replicate. You could do it again and you might yeah. get something else good. So that's the record, you know? The record. I'm not I d I like records. I like to make records. <laughs> and that's what that's about. Making a record. Yeah. And so much of it. Is, it's what you do but it's what happens when you do what you do. That's it's hard to recognize
1: it. a hit, isn't it?
0: Sometimes. yeah. I could, I could pick a hit track off of any kind of album when I was a disc jockey. Within six months of coming to Atlantic I lost my disc jockey years. I, you have no idea. Listen I had a hit with Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway that Arif Martin and I co-produced was called Where Is The Love. Well, I love that song. So the last day before they went to the pressing plant I was trying to take it off the album. And the thing that stopped me was I was walking through the hall and one of the secretaries, Barbara Harris, she said I heard the test pressing on the uh, Roberta and Donnie. I said, "Yeah." She said, "Wow, you got a smash." I said, "What is it?" She said, "What do you mean what is it?" I said, "What is it?" She said, "Where Is The Love." You know, like, "What are you an idiot, you know?" I said, "Really?" She said, "Yeah." I said, "Oh, okay." I figured if the secretaries liked it, they knew more about what was good or bad than I did. I just didn't always have those kind of ears, you know. I knew "Killing Me Softly" was a hit. I knew that was a hit. I knew that was. A hit. In fact, I knew it was going to win the Grammy. So the one or one of the few times I knew I had a hit, Atlantic uh, uh, didn't like it. They wanted me to remix it. They didn't like the drum, that big fat you know foot yeah. in the bass, boom. Yeah. And I said, well, that's the record. I actually had to threaten to quit. I went to Nessui because Ahmed hated it, you know. And I went to and I said, look, I can't do this anymore. I said, that's a smash. That's a number one record. That's a Grammy
1: winner. And indeed it was, winning the Grammy for Record of the Year and Best Female Vocal Performance in 1974. Twenty-three years later, I was looking for an independent record producer that might have interest in unreleased Joe Williams recordings that lived on 30-year-old reel-to-reel tape donated to the Phileas Jazz Archive by Mrs. Jillian Williams. My search led me to a small office in New York where Joel Dorn sat, surrounded by audio gear. Moments after the unmistakable voice of Joe Williams burst out of the speakers, Joel leapt from his seat and yelled, Do you know what the... You've got here! I actually did know, and I also knew that I had found my producer. The CD, Joe Williams, Having a Good Time, was released on Hyena Records in 2005, and Joel made all those decisions I just spoke of. Happily, they were the right ones, even if he was a bit crazy. Unlike Helen Dance, who simply let the music channel through her, some producers like to take a very active role in shaping the final product. Having multiple choices when it comes time to mix gives them extra decision-making opportunities. Saxophonist Tom Scott is quite familiar with this producing approach. And it's a good bet to say that everyone has heard Tom Scott. His distinctive saxophone has been heard on hundreds of recordings, from carol king to steely dan to paul mccartney during our 2022 interview he spoke about a producer who believed more was better just in case were there sessions where you left after playing multiple solos and you didn't know what they were going to use and you might not find out what they were going to use until you were
5: in your car listening every every everyone where i did multiple solos I never knew what they were going to use. You've reminded me of uh, a gentleman named Michael Masser. I don't, I can't remember whether he's still with us or not. But he was a songwriter and record producer who, uh, who called me one time. I didn't know him, but he got my number and said, listen, I'm producing a, a new young lady. I think she's a fantastic singer. I think she's going to big, be a big star. Her name is Whitney Houston. And I've r- written a bunch of songs for her. And I, I'd like you to play on one of them. I said, fine. So I showed up to the studio. Uh, Michael was there. Uh, Whitney Houston was not. She had already laid down her vocal track, so she you know, didn't have to be there. And so uh, it was a tune. It, it, it sort of reminded me, it, it, it definitely had a sort of 50s um, doo-wop kind of a feel. I mean, it was a big production, but basically it was don't, do-do-don't, do <speaking Withiniggers> that kind of a thing, so it's well, nice, you know, pleasant, and so I played uh, I played Phils behind her, and Michael Masser, Simon- <Pictures> he kept wanting, oh well, just do one more, do one more, so I I, I don't know how many takes I did, it, it might have been over twenty, and 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 what and finally I said, look, Michael, um, I I don't. I, whatever I did, uh, you've got it, whatever the best thing is I could possibly do is, you've got it there somewhere. I don't have any more to give to this thing. I'm done. And uh, I just, I just said, I have to go now. (laughs) So, of course, the record came out. It was a huge hit. And uh, I have some, you know, some nice, nice solos, things I'm happy, very happy about.
1: Recording studio dynamics grow even more complicated when the all-important engineer is included. Both artists and producers can make an engineer's life difficult when they stray beyond their own expertise. West Coast engineer Hank Sokalo recorded everyone from Duke Ellington to the Beach Boys and regularly dealt with ill-conceived requests during sessions.
6: Sometimes if you're ready with the producer and an artist, the artists can get really crazy about. I want this tape, and I want those four bars, and I, have to you know, it gets into one of those things. We used to call them suicide missions, because you knew that certain artists were always into editing. We'll get it. You know, let's do another. Let's take and one and two, and we'll put them together. You know? Yeah,
1: what well, you know? Once they see that that stuff is possible, then they start <laughs> thinking. Oh, okay, now I know what what I can do.
6: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> See, we would have a better take on take three. I like to take that second chorus. It's really good. Okay, in the old days, you had the engineers have a scissor. I can't describe it, but you would fly underneath your hand. You could flip it out, and there would be the blaze, and you'd make the cut, Flip this scissor back in again,
1: and and make the cut and put it together. Did it make a difference? The uh, I worked in a studio for a while, and the fellow had the engineer had, of course, speakers in the walls, but in the booth. But then he had a couple oratone like just small speakers, and yeah. Yeah, he would check the mix on those things, I guess, because he was thinking about car radios or that kind of thing.
6: <laughs> car radios was always the answer. I worked with producers. Give me a mix. You put it on a cassette. I'm going to play it in my car. That's nuts. <laughs> I mean, is this car now the opinion, the, This is this is what it's going to sound like. No. You're gonna make it sound for what it's you know, for the best speakers you can. That'll always work. If you're gonna try to work for a small speaker and somebody's, you know, my car is different than your car. You, know? <laughs> you can't do that. You gotta make a good mix mix. And you you know, it's always a, a radio mix. What you're trying to do is to sell the record. So uh, you know, I, I never thought of a guy. Occasionally, a guy would say, I want a studio, I don't want it to uh, a car mix and something like that's nonsense. Mm. And I've also had producers do, uh, uh, give me a cassette. He runs out into this truck, runs out on the parking lot and puts it in his car to listen to what it sounds like. (laughs) It's that joke. It used to knock me out. I got to listen. Make a cassette. I'm going to go out to my car and listen to it. His car is now a your pity. I <laughs> what a record
1: should sound like. When it all works, the listeners reward the effort with their fandom and their dollars. The successful jazz pairings of Orrin Keep News and Bill Evans, George Evakian and Miles Davis, are matched in the pop world with George Martin and the Beatles, Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson. Even when we consider all the effort and drama, it comes down to one basic thing, eloquently described by Bernie Kirsch, who for 40 years was Chick Corea's engineer and collaborator of choice. But the
6: creative process is, is, is a process that's the most personal thing you can do. It's, it's the nearest thing to not being in this world that uh, you can you can do i don't know if you've had the experience you know i have where the world goes away and you're just creating and i think that's what occurs because it's coming from that place and that place is not not in this world
1: a nice coda to this last episode of jazz backstory season two my appreciation to my tech team of doug higgins and jason lever Special thanks to Romy Bertel for interview transcriptions and content guidance and to the late Milt Phileas, Hamilton class of 44, whose vision made all this possible. Jazz Backstory will take a break before the next set. In the meantime, check out the full interviews of these artists and many others on the Phileas Jazz YouTube channel. I'll see you on the flip side.